Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is Stephen Bittner, host of History X Silo and special topics editor at the journal Kritika, Explorations in Russian and Eurasian History. The editors at Kritika have created History X Silo, so historians have a place to discuss their works, share their underlying assumptions, explore similarities and differences, and most important, step outside of their own expertise silos. So much of the work of the professional historian fosters narrow specialization. We become kings and queens of our own historical hills and not much else. History X Silo seeks to remedy this. If you are interested in the mission of History X Silo, or if you think you have an idea for an X Silo conversation, please do not hesitate to reach out to me. You can find my contact info on the History X Silo page at New Books Network. So today we have another conversation that was recommended to me by a listener. I've brought together two historians who approach the past through the lens of currency and monetary policy. In The Ruble, A Political History, Ekaterina Pravilova argues that the history of Russia's currency, the ruble, tells us a great deal about Russia itself, its culture, its political system, and its relationship with the West. Spanning more than 200 years and across the great revolutionary Caesura of 1917, Pravilova's narrative traces the shift from the people's ruble, the paper assignats introduced by Catherine the Great in the late 18th century, to the gold standard that Russia embraced at the end of the 19th century, abandoned after February 1917, and then embraced, embraced again in 1924. Through it all, the state, not commercial interests, played the paramount role in debates about and decisions regarding monetary policy. Even as Russia failed to create institutions, such as an independent bank, that were necessary for the currency system to function properly. In Stuff and Money in the Time of the French Revolution, Rebecca Spang describes a moment when money stopped working. Legislators in revolutionary France failed to fix the equivalence between the new paper money and the coins of the old regime. They also allowed the circulation of unofficial money typically paper currencies and small denominations and tokens. This meant that every exchange was fraught with the potential for dispute. Would the sellers accept the buyer's currency? Would workers be paid in the currency they preferred? Spang argues that the radicalization of the revolutionary regime in the mid-1790s has to be understood in light of this monetary crisis, which in turn was of political origin. When it came to revolutionary politics, Spang argues, and here I'm quoting, the key social nexus was not the relation of individuals to the means of production, but their relation to the means of exchange. 
I think that's one of my favorite sentences I have encountered in the last year. So I'll now introduce our historians. Ekaterina Pravilova is the Rosengarten Chair of Modern and Contemporary History and Professor of History at Princeton University. In addition to the ruble of political history, she is the author of two books published in Russian, Legality and Individual Rights, Administrative Justice in Russia, and Finances of Empire, Money and Power in Russia's National Borderlands. She's also author of a third book in English, A Public Empire, Property and the Quest for the Common Good in Imperial Russia. This latter book won numerous prominent awards, including the George L. Mossy Prize from the American Historical Association for the best book in modern European and cultural history, and the Wayne C. Vucinich Prize from the Association of Slavic, Eurasian, and East European Studies for the most important contribution to the field. Rebecca Spang is Distinguished Professor and the Ruth N. Halls Professor in the Department of History at Indiana University. In addition to Stuff and Money in the Time of the French Revolution, Spang is the author of The Invention of the Restaurant, Paris in Modern Gastronomic Culture. Spang's books have also won numerous prizes, including the Gottschalk Prize for the Best Book in 18th Century Studies, from the American Society for 18th Century Studies for the Invention of the Restaurant, and a Financial Times Book of the Year designation for Stuff and Money. I am very pleased to welcome both Pravilova and Spang to the podcast. I look forward to our conversation. Uh, Katya, we decided beforehand that you would speak first. Um, yes, uh, with pleasure. Thank you so much again, Stephen, for inviting me and uh, Rebecca for uh, finding time to talk about our books. Um, I read your book when I was just starting my research and I reread it again. I was totally amazed again how much we have in common in our uh, approach to money in our treatment uh, of monetary history. So what I found most um, important in, in our books is that we both, we're not economic historians, right? Uh, uh, and we both study money or approach money as a way of uh, studying the history of the state and the history of, of nation. So in your book, you uh, study history of the French Revolution and approach it from the point of view of uh, revolutionary money. And uh, uh, this connection between politics and finance, as I found uh, the most important and interesting. I love, particularly love this expression when you read about money is a hinge that keeps together between a uh, hinge between the the politics and economics. I I, I found this expression uh, just uh, so beautiful and so precise because exactly money is not only financial institution or economic institution. This is what I'm trying to argue in my book throughout this political history of the ruble, this is something that keeps these two spheres together. And uh, another thing that I think we both have in common is this common dissatisfaction with economic history of currency. 
because uh, uh, we know often the historians of money approach uh, financial institutions only from this financial point of view and just completely overlooking social, cultural, uh, political and artistic dimensions. So uh, your book brings everything together in, in a very elegant way. So we have uh, politics, we have political ideas, we have uh, the voice, we hear the voices of people who were using money, but also you write beautifully about how Asenias look like and how this physical uh, or aesthetic quality uh, of Asenias affected uh, the prestige and um, the, uh, the attitude, people's attitude uh, to money. So I think that uh, in uh, you have so many you've made so many interventions, of course, into the history of historiography of French Revolution, but in general also the history of European and not perhaps even the European um, uh, financial system. Uh, let me just mention a, a few of these main ideas. Um, the first one I think is that the history of money uh, during the time of the revolution. Uh, helps to show uh, or to interrogate again the problem of change uh, and continuity. So you, you start beautifully from the old regime system of credits and go all the way until like almost mid 19th century, showing to what extent this uh, Tukulian idea of the old regime was specifically true for, for finance and how revolution was, of course, a, a huge uh, break and and who a huge caesura as, as Stephen mentioned <laughs> talking about 1917 but at the same time to what extent this uh the old regime was not so in the old right there, there are new elements already developing and um before the revolution at the, at the same time to what extent the revolution uh not I don't want to say failed to change this financial institution but it was some resilience and there are some constraints, uh, political as well as uh, economic. So this change and revolution of thing, this is one of the main themes that runs through uh, your book as well as from mine, because uh, <laughs> I, I write about the revolution in 1917, very much inspired by your treatment as something uh, is this, uh, I argue that uh, in 1917, the revolution in monetary philosophy did not happen. Uh, and I, I found so much um, in common with your um, uh, ideas. Um, there is also a problem of freedom and state power, right? Because a revolution is about liberty and freedom, but when it comes to uh, financial issues, it turned out that the, uh, it's very difficult to enact this <laughs> ideas of liberty when it comes to money. And in fact, maybe this idea of liberty and, and freedom, the freedom to choose whether to accept money or not to accept, this is something that we associate with this uh, laissez-faire and, and the free market. Uh, perhaps it's even just not compatible with the, with this idea of monetary order, and as as a result, this financial um, you explained that these financial troubles um, during the time of the French Revolution were very much just the consequences of the inability of the state to take care or to hold on uh, this uh, financial mechanisms of making money and regulating monetary economy. Uh, 
Um, so uh, I think that these are like the the, uh, the the most important political ideas. There are so many other things that when you go into um, and and uh, and of course this uh, completely consideration of idea of inflation and a relationship between matter and value, which I also found very very close to my uh, treatment and the problems of um, uh, private and and public institutions in in this financial spheres. Uh, but uh, I was here maybe um so you could respond to maybe your uh, uh reading of of the russian case to what extent you think you find perils and maybe some uh um, very significant um, differences thank you thank you so much katya and thank you stephen um you somehow have both managed to put your finger on sentences that took me oh i don't know six months to write, like the the one, Stephen, uh, that you quoted about not the means of production, but the means of distribution. I walked around for months thinking, why isn't this book, quote unquote, history of capitalism? And I actually don't like a lot of what is done in the name of, of the history of capitalism. And then, then I finally figured it out because it was relation to the means of exchange, not the means of production. And that, but again, it took me forever to figure that out. And Katya, when I, it was actually, of all the strange things, it was Derrida that made me think of The Hinge. Um, and then I was like, ah, oh, so I'm going to be really rude and actually read a couple sentences because I was so pleased with those sentences. Money was the hinge um, holding uh, economic life and political opinions together, the pivot around which politics and economics opened and closed onto each other. It was in this period, so 1793-94, an especially swollen and creaky joint. Anytime someone made a purchase or a sale, whenever taxes were to be paid or collected, whenever a marriage contract was written or an estate was to be divided among heirs, on all these occasions and on thousands of others, the problem of what constituted money and of who had the right to issue it could easily arise. Um, and then I show how that was true sort of at all levels of society. So, but again, I have no idea how long it took me to to find that image, but but I'm so glad you found it in the book and that you like it because it just means the world to me when I realized that something I came up with actually was helpful to somebody else. So I want to go back to where you started with saying that we're not economic historians, and it's true we weren't trained in economics departments. Um, and in fact, the one really hostile review of my book was in the Journal of Economic History. Um, and it said, strangely, there are no charts and graphs in this book. Um, and I'm reminded of just a few weeks ago when I took my freshman in my enlightenment seminar to the Rare Books Library to see actual 18th century materials. And one of them, who's a finance major, looked at the first edition of Adam Smith, uh, Wealth of Nations, and flipped through it. And he was like, where are the, where are the illustrations? And I said, well, it doesn't have any. And he said, but, but it has no charts. It has no graphs. It has no math. It has no equations. And I said, yeah, you're right. So what you and I have done is to rejoin a tradition of political economy that was absolutely foundational and still really fairly alive in the field that became economics well into the early 20th century. But then the point at which economists doubled down on mathematics 
as the closest aligned discipline. And when they did that, they said that basically history doesn't matter because it's always the same equation wherever it is. And of course, the culmination of that is the Friedmanite um, inflation is always a monetary problem. Right? And so at that point, economic historians tend to look at the past in order to predict the future. We as political and social historians know that one of the biggest mistakes people ever make in the past is thinking that they can look at the past to predict the future. Um, so I just think it's really, really interesting and important how, how those have divulged. Um, you also, you also mentioned what I think was for the French revolutionaries, the, the crux of how they managed to get so twisted and turned when they tried to think about money. If, if liberty is what matters to you more than anything else, then to say, no, hold on, wait a minute, we're the state, we're the ones issuing the money, nobody else gets to do that, is obviously a violation of liberty. So because they had a revolution in order to have freedom, Anybody can have money, anybody can issue it. It's your choice, take the money you want. I mean, that's a really radical position. You know, I mean, Hayek did in the 70s write an essay about competition between national monies and you know, said that everybody should have free choice on what money they used and eventually the market would just sort it out. Um, I mean, this I think is where Polanyi's point that actually the idea of the free market requires some things in which there are not markets in order to sort of stabilize the whole system. That I think um, is something that the zealots for free money don't, don't take on board. Um, so in reading your book, um, of course, I found very few references anywhere in 19th century Russia where people were like, hey, we need more freedom, <laughs> that not being something that the upper levels of the administration, even, even the more liberal ones, even the, the sort of westernizing ones, the version of liberty they have in mind, if I read you correctly, is basically, oh, why can't we have a Bank of England? Right? Or why can't we have a Banque de France? We want to be more like Western Europe because they have certain freedoms. I was very interested in the way in which um, your various liberal protagonists, and sometimes I thought you as well, and then other places I wasn't so sure if this was your position, um, seem to share the assumption that um, uh, quote unquote liberal monetary institutions and liberal political institutions would follow each other. Right. Free markets and and an electorate and uh, representative institutions all would make sort of modern prosperity. Um, I mean, the so-called Washington consensus. Sometimes it seems like you agree with that perspective. And sometimes I think you're skeptical of it. So I'd be interested um, to hear to hear more about that, um, because I think I think you're in a position as a Russianist um, that maybe scholars of Asia are as well, where because the dominant model for how money is supposed to work and the model that economists work with is the model that comes from Britain and the United States, there's a tendency, I think, to talk about, um, and I think Stephen said this in his introduction, Russia failed to create the institutions necessary for 
healthy functioning. But that all depends on assuming that the only kind of healthy functioning in a monetary system is the sort that you have in Britain and the United States. Um, so I guess another thing to talk about is whether the Russian experience in the 19th century really suggests that up until the point of forcing Russia into their gold standard, there really was an alternative model, another way that modern money could have developed had not the voices calling for Russia to become part of the gold standard um, eventually prevailed. Yeah, uh, you're completely right that uh, liberals had these uh, models in mind, this Bank of England and the Banque de France, and, and occasionally they will refer to, like later to the Austrian model is more compatible, German model is more compatible uh, with the Russian political organization. And uh, indeed, there was this little bit of obsession with the, uh, with the concept of reforming the bank, right? Because uh, the state bank. So just to, to listeners, to explain to the listeners um, how this all worked and why there's this uh, idea of uh, bank reform so central is in Russia, unlike any other countries, I think, uh, at that time in the 19th century, the money was made by the Ministry of Finance, by the state, or by later by uh, state bank that was essentially part of the Ministry of Finance. And of course, in this autocratic system, like everything depended on the czar, was essentially the money was a, a, an extension of the autocratic power. Uh, therefore, uh, the gold reserve, even when it existed, was completely under the, you know, the czar could dispose of this gold reserve that's supposed to back up uh, the, the paper currency. It was not protected, it was not the national property. And therefore, liberals who were arguing for, who were kind of dissatisfied with Russian financial position, and you know, uh, perhaps the all historians know that, um, of Russia know that the Russian ruble was constantly in, in this situation of crisis. So they came up with the idea that to fix it, we need to fix the institutions. And that means uh, taking the state bank out of control uh, of the government to basically introducing the idea of separation of power into financial spheres. So the idea is that if you make money, you shouldn't be the same agency that, that spends it, right? Because you know, you'll make more money to spend it, right? So it makes no, it, it's logically just incorrect. So why the if Ministry of Finance then spends money on state expenses and expenditures and like army and everything else, um, in other institution that will be controlled by by the people who will be making this money, right? Producing like issuing money or this uh, what was called the um, the emission uh, emission. Um, and uh, this idea was uh, uh, appeared very early on in the late 18th century, and I continued until uh, I don't know, 1920s. So it was uh, all the time circulating. Um, the uh, ec economists and politicians were uh, talking about it, but there was also another. I think this is uh, Russia's. Um, in, in this is the, the specificity specificity of the Russian case that. Um, as I say um, in, in the introduction, uh, in Russia, we know that there was political censorship and the possibilities for political discussion was limited. And it was not always okay to say, oh, we want a parliament or we want a constitution, right? So, and uh, sometimes to say that we actually want uh, a, a separate independent bank of issue, that was a way to say, uh, we want a constitutional monarchy because it's it, that assumes like if you know if you know that you make these logical st uh, steps that the czar 
cannot control finances, cannot control decisions of, uh, of money. Therefore, we want to limit autocracy, at least in financials, but it's fair, but also the bank issue, bank of issue uh, was imagined as like the like financial parliament of some, of some sort, right? So therefore, you know, I don't think that any other country will ever produce so many, <laughs> I mean, intellectuals produce some, so like heated debates or and the plans of reforming the bank because it was just the, um, you know, the matter for, for, for financial, um, for financial um, constitution and I think, uh, of course, uh, the idea of liberties that you describe um, there are there will be too radical. Uh, so this you know uh, liberty on the level of individual choices, right? Uh, uh, perhaps the, uh, the the did not circulate. When you write about liberty, I found uh, totally fascinating that you were able to find this you know to excavate the voices of people who are actually using uh asanias and and this story maybe you can also uh, uh i don't know if either read or just uh, tell um for for listeners about nicola noel whose letters you discovered who writes that about all of his moral scruples that how to reconcile this problem and he cannot buy anything for, for the Asinias. Uh, but uh, at the same time, this is something, that, the token of friendship, political freedom. Uh, <laughs> I found this fascinating. Well, um, the, the great advantage, but sometimes um, the overwhelming element of being a historian of the period of the French Revolution is, of course, this is a period when the state, not just at the sort of national level, but all the way down in the communes is generating so much paperwork. And everybody, I mean, a surprising number of people feel that they have the right, the obligation to um, correspond with government officials at some level about what they think would make the money work. I mean, also what they think would make the army work, what they think would make um, iron production work. I mean, it's just a time of this incredible outpouring of people's opinions about everything. Um, so it's quite, and but, but that it's also a time when the question of how the money works is up in the air. I think the best analogy there might be the United States in the aftermath of the Civil War, sort of the whole period where the question of like, what are the greenbacks? And are we going to keep the paper in circulation? And there's, I mean, the extent to which monetary questions are central to the politics of post-Civil War US, um, even though they can talk about politics as well. Um, whereas you've got a situation, um, which you just explained so well, where, you know, they can't publicly write about politics, but they can write about finance, but they are imagining that changing the monetary mechanisms will change the politics, right? So that goes right to the thing that Chris Dazan always says about money being a constitutional project because money is how polities are constituted. Um, and it's as if your protagonists had somehow read Christison or predicted the argument of Chris's book, you know, 150 years before she wrote it. Um, so, so that's really, um, really fascinating. Um, I was struck when you said, because it, it's true that Russia in the 19th century is perhaps the only case where, um, 
no, actually, I need to stop and think about the Qing Empire. Um, but uh, let's not go there. That gets very confusing. Um, but uh, the only case where there's absolutely no separation of powers between the issuer of the money and the spender of the money. And that stuck with me because I know that um, right-wing critics of the Federal Reserve today in the United States, you know, sort of Trumpists, they will say that the Federal Reserve System is the federal government. They don't think there's any difference, right? They collapse the two and um, see them see the bank as being an autocratic tool of government. Now, what's curious is that you get a different critique of the Federal Reserve from some political progressives in the United States. So a number of people who identify with MMT, so-called modern monetary theory, um, or maybe even Sada Omorova, candidate for control of the currency, um, they say that the Fed should be more political. And actually what they describe, um, and it's Stephanie Kelton, who was the financial advisor to Bernie Sanders' campaign in 2016, um, they describe something weirdly um, like uh, the um, protagonists of your imperial ruble who say, you know, as long as we're printing and spending this money for things that are good for the United States, it can never be bad, right? We can print as much money as we need to pay daycare workers $85,000 a year. We can pay as much, print as much money as we need to build roads and to build bridges. As long as we're spending it on good things, things that we want, this will only be good. It will only make the country richer. Um, so again, there are these funny echoes. I'm reminded of the literature that compares the Soviet Union, not the Imperial Russia, not Imperial Russia, but the Soviet Union to the United States, and wondering if there isn't actually a longer history there. Um, but maybe for the listeners, it would be helpful for you to explain um, the whole philosophy of the of productive money and the imperial ruble um, and why um, that eventually is not where they set. Okay, yeah, that's uh, one of these uh, very interesting uh, stories, this idea of productive ruble that appeared that is an alternative to a liberal uh, concept. And uh, it sounds very rational, right? So this idea of conservatives who didn't want to separate the bank uh, from the government and just to introduce all of this is they thought completely alien ideas of of uh, backing up rubles with gold or the silver. They said, okay, so this you know the gold and silver. This is all. This is uh, Western heresy. We don't want it. This is you know the Western individual capitalism. It's completely alien to uh, uh, to uh, to Russian spirit and Russian soul. What we need is 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 a different model which does not separate the state from the people. And they said, so we just let the czar or the government print as as much or as many paper rubles as 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 the government needs. But and the government big infrastructural projects, and uh, the you know the the list of projects was uh, indefinite. That could be like building canals from Central Asia. This all of them were kind of pretty bizarre, uh, connecting the Aral Sea to the Baltic Sea. 
now. This is just one of them. Or, uh, yes, and the irrigation of Central Asia or reversal of Siberian rivers. But the most uh, famous was, of course, this um, idea of productive money that, uh, interesting enough, was um, uh, uh, was uh, also voiced by Sergei Vita, who later changed his mind and became, like, uh, in this way, um, uh, a supporter of the gold standard. So he suggested... Um, uh, he suggested just uh, building railroads, um, and uh, therefore, if the government just prints money, um, spends the money in building railroads, including, for instance, this this uh, there, the uh, Eastern Siberia Railroad, the products or the results of economic activity of the railroad would be sufficient to back up uh, the the value of of this currency. How exactly it was supposed to work, he didn't explain. But this idea that goes all the way back to the early 19th century, when uh, again uh, there was the first confrontation between the liberal concepts uh, advanced by Mikhail Spiransky and Nikolai Karamzin on the other side, and this is this is the first separation of liberal conservatism and uh, the liberals. Now their position seems a little bit bizarre when when we're talking about the gold reserve, the silver reserve, and uh, the conservatives were saying, "No, we don't need this." But essentially, that's the productive money just meant on this political parlance, just leave the czars and the government alone, right? So we don't need any p- political uh, control, right? So, uh, you know, uh, when we write about um, uh, this uh, financial ideas of the past, we should always keep in mind to what extent this political meaning of these ideas make them different from contemporary situation. Because now the we have... Fiat money, right, is is a norm uh, uh, because uh, we've abandoned the gold standard and now it's is considered as like a very antique and uh, irrational idea. But in, in this political situation of nineteenth century or eighteenth century um, Russia and Europe, uh, the gold standard was just something that would a mechanism of controlling the government. This is what the Russians uh, economists thought. Whereas the fiat money was just equivalent to unrestricted um, uh, emission and as a, as a consequence in inflation. So uh, now economically it doesn't make sense, right? But politically, this this uh, that's uh, of course this uh, ideas of control of of control responsibility dominated. Therefore, they were so uh, divided politically as as well as economically. Uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, that makes total sense to me, because certainly in the um, 17th and 18th century cr- Western European critique of absolutist monarchy, one of the ideas is that the king should not have the right to just decide how much the money is worth, right? I mean, remember that 17th, 18th century Western European money, the, the coins don't have a value stamped on them. The, I mean, again, the king at any point can say, all right, that silver thing, it's worth three AQ, it's worth three and a half AQ, what have you. And it was resistance to that idea, right? And so the enlightenment idea that nature um, and the, the amount of gold and silver would be um, a constraint on monarchical excess, right? And so this is very much, and it, it's actually fascinating to me that there's so little interest um, in Imperial Russia in um, a metallic monetary standard since Russia has such amazing mining capacity, 
right? You would think that of all places, they'd be like, hey, I mean, there's a wonderful example where they're like, well, we have platinum. Nobody else has platinum. Let's make platinum the standard. Um, um, and that's a great, great example. Um, so I do think um, that you've, again, emphasized something really important that lots of, his, lots of economists don't want to think about, which is that the meaning of a particular monetary standard differs with the local politics and the local history the same thing every place right I mean obviously in um, many uh, parts of the world it was a tool of empire um, and um, so the it doesn't have a right, it doesn't have a single meaning which is, is difficult for economists with their equations um, to to fathom I think um, can we talk because I'm afraid that we're going to get to the end of this and we won't have talked about um, the fantasy, or was it a reality that um, centuries before the period of your book, Russia had a really well-developed system of leather money? Can you tell the story of somebody believing that and especially explain what kind of leather? Because, you know, this isn't cow leather. It isn't even sheep leather. Well, uh <laughs> Total disclaimer, I'm not a medieval historian, and uh, medieval historians also are not totally sure whether leather money ever existed or not, so perhaps there was this phenomenon, but never, nobody ever saw, of course, these examples of leather money uh, in person. So just to retell the story, um, this all relates to the early 19th century debates uh, about this medieval pre-Mongol system of, of currency. Um, so uh, Nikolai Karamzin, who is, a who is a famous historian, and at the same time participated in politician, of course, one of the, like, the main thinkers, the founders of Russian conservatism, he was especially critical of Mikhail Skuransky's idea of putting Russian assignats in silver standard. This is one of the arguments he used there, um, this uh, brilliant, I think, concept that Russia was first to introduce paper assignats even before all other countries could think about it. So it was way before the Mongol invasion, when the leather money existed, that means that the pieces of leather or just the, just the skins of, of forest animals were stamped with uh, princes' stamps, right? The 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 uh, the symbols of prin uh, princes' power, and they circulated. Uh, and uh, the idea that Karamzin was actually a very <laughs> smart idea that he says that to so see this money was based on abstract assumption of value and on the on the power of the of the prince that said that this is money. This is this has this value, right? And only the Mongols later came and brought these coins and therefore kind of corrupted Russia's very advanced um, uh, monetary system. And uh, of course, uh, and nobody, uh, Karamzin did not see the money. It was all his interpretation of linguistic interpretation of some passages in, in the Chronicles. But this um, seemingly very academic debate later developed in, in the huge financial and political debates, because of course it was all about Russia's distinction from the West and Russia's, uh, Russia is better and more advanced, uh, but it's just different. Um, and of course, this uh, idea of like the all these this, um, ideas of of m money is uh, based on is this thought inherent, uh, quote unquote, 
uh, value of metal. This is all either this is always brought from from abroad, either by from the West in the 19th century or from the East by the Mongols. And you know, just rem to remind you, this all this conversation about Asinias was taking place on the eve of uh, Napoleon's invasion. So. <laughs> Of course, the Napoleon, his Bank of France, and his uh, his uh, Western standards concept of monetary economy was sort of similar to the Mongols. And Skaransky was presented as this a traitor because uh, he wanted to um, introduce the strange ideas uh, in, in uh, on the Russian soil. So this uh, uh, this um, debate uh, it continued all throughout the whole nineteenth century, and of course. Uh, there is a um, very little uh, in terms of the, the critical reading of, of chronicles, but more about using this historical argument to advance financial and political ideas. And every time when the conservatives were kind of raising the voice, they would say, oh, by the way, they have the money. <laughs> so it was very uh, strange intervention of this, you know, historical uh, argument into, into financial financial debate. So really uh, exciting and, and uh, remarkable um, is a kind of um, uh, merging of this historical uh, and financial political uh, discourses. Yeah, it really I, I... is. And I love the idea um, because it's not one that one finds in monetary history as it's usually written, that mm -hmm gold and silver are a sign of barbarism, right? That you'd have to be a Mongol to, to require that instead of knowing that leather, I mean, but again, I mean, it's like little forest creatures and, and their little faces stamped with the king's stamp, um, that that would suffice to be money. Um, so, I mean, it's really a quite brilliant critique. And one thing I think that's fascinating is the extent to which um, and this isn't so much in my book, but um, related to some other research I've been doing, how in the early 19th century, the critique of monetary orthodoxy is, is, is much more likely to come from conservatives than from liberals, because of course, a lot of the liberal view of money is what becomes orthodoxy in the 19th and 20th century. And I think, you think it does show, perhaps like with politics in general today, the way in which the um, liberal conservative left-right spectrum may not really work very well anymore um, because it's gotten reconfigured so many times. Um, but it's, again, I just find that such, such an interesting story. Um, and I mean, there are so many other little items that you touched on in your book um, that I would love to hear about more. Um, but can I, can I just jump in? Because I think this is where we also have a lot of com in common, because this the whole idea of other money as well as parallels to uh, the problem of language. Uh, so that the that money is is the all the debates were had were also not about only poetic but also there is epistemology right so how do you connect something like money is a sign it's like letter or a word that stands for something else and um, I think that you use this beautiful um, phrase I think it was from Walter that silver means uh, a silver can be made of gold right so this idea of when you bridge when the, uh, to use paper 
money for uh, to exchange it for a real i don't know pair of shoes you need to bridge this <laughs> epistemological divide right between how to equal something that's inherently is not valuable to something that is can be used that has value and uh i think that the french revolution also the very critical moments in in the forcing this uh, epistemological equation or the epistemological choice, because this is uh, all fell on um, uh, people's uh, everyday interactions, right? So it, it's an intellectual uh, jump or intellectual step, but also uh, and political. So I think that- it Definitely. And I think, I mean, where, where I come to, and sometimes when, again, I'm talking to, um, political activists who really want to use the monetary system to force kinds of change. And I tend to be like, oh, I would do that. I would do that if I were you. Um, because really, once you start messing with the money, and once people realize that they can no longer count on, I don't know why it works, but I give you this little plastic card and you let me take away all my groceries. Um, you, and I take my card back and I get to use it again. Um, like if that stopped working and like we had to like haggle and figure out, well, do you want cash for the groceries? Do you want me to like sweep the floors? What do I have to do to get my groceries out of the grocery store? Um, like that would just slow things down so extraordinarily. And, uh, and obviously we see this in cases of hyperinflation, whether it's in Zimbabwe or in Argentina, um, yeah, it really does bring economic life and so personal life and social life to a halt when you've got to stop and think that carefully about how to make every transaction. So the funny thing about the sort of epistemological leap that is money is that it's one we make every day without knowing it or without thinking about it, all right? So um, it's really um, one of those things where, yes, we could consciously say, I know this is just a piece of plastic, I know this is just a piece of paper, but on the other hand, we also know and feel very deeply that it works. Um, and so these moments of political rupture where it doesn't work and people have to actually consciously think about how to put it back together these are really, really disruptive periods um, in social life. And, you know, I like studying revolutions, but I have no particular desire to live through one. Yeah, well, to, to this point about this, uh, the, the fact that we don't think about it every day, but it, and I, I, you use several wonderful uh, metaphors to describe this uh, connection you read about money's gender, something like reenacted every time. So it's constantly, it's not something fixed, right? It's because it's, it needs to be reapproved in socialism is a matter of, of, of trust. But also you write about the religious component to it, uh, of it, like, uh, uh, this transfiguration kind of it sounds like blasphemy though <laughs> but uh, <laughs> it's transfiguration that occurs in the moment that something stands for, for, for something else right so it's, it, which is is uh, uh, of course the key element and in the religious uh, practices and religious um, uh, rituals i wanted to uh, also talk about one of your main statements i think in the book because you write about uh, the i think the most the, the bravest uh, statement that uh, you make is about the 
causes of inflation. Um, and you uh, say that is usually we think that uh, uh, Asenia's the system of Asenia's collapse because the government just overprinted them. Uh, there's just you know the and and this quantity, the mere quantity of it, just uh, drag them down. And you said this is not true, and uh, and I found this very interesting because uh, you know of course there's a lot of France. French examples in my book, because especially during the revolution 1917 and after that, uh, during this war communism, because there was hyperinflation, uh, Soviet economies were looking back into the moment of, of French revolution and saying, so why didn't they work with this revolutionary asinias? What did they do wrong? And uh, you, you kind of give a, an answer to this question, the answer that they, of course, were not aware of. And that uh, uh, and it's it's also connected to uh, the the problem of religion. Maybe you can uh, just explain to right. us. So again, this is one of those things where in the first, it took me a long time to write this book. And for the first few years, I just assumed because the economists kept telling me and the economic historians kept telling me that if you quote unquote overprint, inflation inevitably results. And I thought, well. If that's true, if it's always true, then I'm not going to have anything really to say in this book. And that's frustrating. But then I realized that, you know, as a historian, it's it's my job to question things that are supposed to be ahistorical truths. Right? Um, you know, the one of the most important things you do as a historian is to teach the world never to say always or never. Um, right, because history is made up out of the particulars and the specifics and the contingents. So let's think for a moment about the controversy over the issue of paper in the French Revolution. So the paper that's issued by the French Revolution was, um, and I think the protagonist seriously believed it was, backed by properties that had been seized from the Catholic Church. So the idea was that the French state would take over all of the welfare functions that the Catholic Church had exercised for the past thousand years, um, and it would pay a salary to French Catholic priests. And because all of that property was being held out of the economy by the Catholic Church to support its welfare activities and to support the priests, therefore that would be a fair trade. Um, and it would restore the Catholic Church in France to its um, primitive state of poverty, which, you know, because after all, Jesus does not say to the disciples, go forth and be property developers. And yet somehow that is what the Catholic Church in France had become. So um, in late 1789, 1790, the Constituent Assembly nationalizes the properties formerly held by the church, and then a long, complicated process ends up issuing paper backed by those properties, because you can't just pay somebody with a nationalized monastery, right? but you can pay somebody with a piece of paper whose value is backed by all of these properties. Except you can't pay that paper to half at least of the population of France who believed that the French state had absolutely no right to touch the properties of the Catholic Church. Right? Remember, more than 50% of the French priesthood refuses to take an oath of loyalty to the French nation because they say, we're Catholic priests, our loyalty is to the Pope. 
So the country is really fiercely, fiercely divided about whether there's any legitimacy to the issue of the paper in, at all. So because of that political controversy, which is, as you say, also a religious controversy, um, but also because the first Asenya, um, the French ones, were issued in very large denominations that were not convenient for doing things like buying a loaf of bread. Um, for that reason, um, there's already discounting of the value of the Asenya even before there's quote unquote over issue, right? Storekeepers, but again, because in a context of total liberty, it's fine for storekeepers to say, yeah, you can have the loaf of bread for um, two in coin or four in paper. So that liberty was already established. What that means is that prices go up. As prices go up, the government has to print more money so that it can, buy the things it needs in 1792, three, four to um, prosecute the war, right? So my argument, and this was actually the finding um, of an economic historian who wrote about the Asenya in the 1930s, is that prices go up first, then more Asenya are issued, then prices go up again, but it's really that the prices go up first and the prices go up because of political religious controversy and because of the demands of a war economy. And then they start issuing more. Um, and then in the aftermath um, in 1795, um, after Robespierre has been deposed, the people who depose Robespierre start to, to develop and to um, say that one of the signs of the terror, quote unquote, was had been the so-called overissue of Asenya and the need to reground. But it's true that that um, that is a controversial chapter in my book um, and uh, one that I've um, had to come back to and talk to people about um, on several occasions because it really um, does fly in the face of, of a lot of received wisdom. Well, I think that you're not the only example. I'm just thinking about Isabella Weber, her uh, <laughs> economist who wrote about inflation and uh, said, you know, it's not about what you would usually think. It's about uh, the behavior of, of people who actually very similar to what you're saying. And it's, it's about trust in the behavior, economic behavior of, of, of producers and sellers. Uh, yeah, and I remembered what all of this, you know, criticism that, uh, that she was attacked for, like violating the the most uh, the the sacred principles of, of political economy. So I think that this is just a problem, and when we talk about inflation, and that's it's always a very yeah. Uh, no, but again, the the Isabel Weber case so clearly also highlighted the extent to which the economics profession, and this is why we should be happy that we're historians and not economists, is still so um, male dominated. So as I learned to say when I was in Britain, blokey. Um, and you know, that this woman, um, not at quote unquote, a top five department would have the nerve to write about inflation in a completely different way. Yeah, that was just extraordinary. That was a really remarkable controversy. And everything that's happened since then seems to show that she was basically right. Right. And then, by the way, she also used the historical examples to, to prove your point. <laughs> right. Knowledge of, as she referred to, uh, Woodward One, I think that uh, is 
as a as a as a as a the point of preference, and I think that's it's also very true for for the Russian case, of course, and uh, that's a very good example of of um, studying. Uh, I didn't do that in my book because it just uh, couldn't cover everything. But so it's a very uh, important moment to study the relationship between prices and and uh, monetary policies, uh, how this two uh, correlated. And uh, I don't think that anybody after Chiyanov, who was like hundred years ago, did this. But uh, yeah, so it was uh, uh, so not uh, a very well researched topic, but. Uh, I found this uh, the whole thing about this uh, idea of especially interesting how people refuse to accept Asenias because they knew that they were be they're backed by the church land and the church did not agree. So uh, to to there was a forceful seizure of this property. So so the lack of consensus and and the um, the awareness of people that this is what stands behind. Um, uh, the Asenia thing was really fascinating, and of course, it connects to uh, like um, example of uh, American Revolution as well. When this, uh, the uh, we just uh, uh, we have a a colleague, Princeton um, uh, Michael Blackman, and his book Speculation Nation was just released like a month ago, and he talks the story which actually predated the French Revolution about this uh, the speculation, land speculation, and how it was connected to uh, finance, financial needs uh, of the revolutionary Republican government. I think it's a very close analogy. But uh, interestingly enough, I found so many parallels because uh, there's the idea of land money was extremely popular in Russia. And of course, it usually was by conservatives who were saying just not like we need to align all this land and, and uh, just print money on, on but it's just we have a lot of land, <laughs> <laughs> and that's enough, right? So we will we, we, we'll never be poor. So let's print money because we have this wealth, and uh, um, and uh, then I, I show also how paradoxically this idea of printing on on the credit rubles bill that they are backed by uh, uh, national domain was a paraphrase of the French opinions and how. Nicholas I, who essentially coined this phrase, could not even think about this parallel. He's like anti-revolutionary, the gendarme of Europe, and somehow it didn't occur to him that the, the history of this room it leads him back, all the way back to the French Revolution. I found this a it's totally yeah. fun. No, that, that's absolutely hilarious. Um, and again, it highlights, I think, the importance of the context and of who the actors are, because it's one thing to be a newly constituted national representative political body and say, we are the state and we are taking this land from the church. And it's another thing to be the czar and to say, mm, I am Russia. I am all the land. I am also the Orthodox church. I am all of this. So it's all, it all has a lot of value. Um, it, it plays out very differently depending on, on who the speaker is. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, this has been such a fascinating conversation. Um, I've really enjoyed this. Okay, well, on behalf of everyone at Kritika, I want to thank Ekaterina Pravilova and Rebecca Spang for their conversation today. 
you can find links to the books they have discussed on the History X Silo page at New Books Network. Uh, please keep an eye on the History X Silo page for our next History X Silo conversation. Goodbye.